Hello, friends. I am thrilled to share that I'll be recording a live episode of On Being in New York City with poet and MacArthur Genius Fellow Claudia Rankine as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. Our conversation will take place on November 12th at 7 p.m. at the K Playhouse at Hunter College. This is an evening you won't want to miss, so buy tickets now at workitevents.com. That's workit, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. We generally avoid lightning rod figures on this show. But earlier this year, the University of Montana in Missoula, a blue city in a red state, invited on being to attempt an outside-the-box civil conversation between two pundits with big followings on contrasting ends of the U.S. political spectrum. It became a sold-out public event in the spirit of Montana's Senator Mike Mansfield, who famously modeled integrity, courage, and humility across the partisan aisle in the tumult of the 1960s and 70s. We first reached out to CNN commentator Sally Cohn, who for several years was best known as the liberal lesbian contributor to Fox News. She'd just written a book which gathered its own controversy called The Opposite of Hate. Sally asked to be paired with Eric Erickson. He was a longtime executive editor of the conservative blog Red State, and he's an evangelical daily drive-time radio host in Atlanta. He enthusiastically agreed. Since we recorded this conversation, the two of them have been on polar opposite sides of the Kavanaugh hearings and as controversial as ever before. But I couldn't let go of a conversation I had after the event with two 12-year-old girls who waited in a long line. They told me they'd come at the insistence of a teacher and had expected to be bored. They were instead exhilarated. In the short span of time in which they've come into political awareness, they told me, they had not witnessed or imagined that this was possible. A true back and forth marked at once by bedrock difference and goodwill, humor, and a willingness to bring our questions as well as our arguments, our humanity as well as our positions, into the room, if only for an evening. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. This conversation unfolded at the Denison Theater in Missoula, Montana, and was co-hosted by Montana Public Radio. So, you know, as, as I uh, moved through 2016, um, what started being clear to me kind of midway through that year is whoever won, um, the deep work that we were going to have to do as a society was about was human work about repairing, like stitching relationship across that rupture that had suddenly become un, you know, we couldn't no longer not see it. And that somehow that was going to involve each and every one of us, wherever we were on the political or social spectrum, taking some kind of stock in terms of how we got to this place. And, um, you know, Sally, you... uh, you know, you, I mean, you, as we say, you're a liberal. Like, your credentials are firm. Um, Thank you. And I don't think you, I, 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 I've, I've worked really hard. Uh, yeah, okay. On that. All right, so you demonstrated that. Yeah. But you tell a story that I found very, you know, and you, you talk about how you, you grew up as a community organizer, and you, know, you said this, you know, right wingers were my enemies and I hated them. And you even grew up in a kind of the, a, with a philosophy of community organizing that formed a lot of people that your political enemies were devils. Um, and you, you've worked to not be that way, but in this election, that all resurfaced for you. Um, you tell this story, and I think also something that you both have in common is you're both parents. You're right in the thick of parenting, and that's influencing how this reckoning you're doing. And you tell a story of being in your lovely leafy neighborhood block party in Brooklyn in the summer of 2016, and and there was a pinata of Donald Trump's head. And you complained uncivilly. <laughs> but you also, you also told your daughter... I mean, it is Brooklyn, so, you know, you got <laughs> okay. to use certain language to be heard, you know? But, right. But you told your daughter that she couldn't go because that was not right. 
One of the things that's interesting to me, so in this, in this book um, that I wrote, one of the things I did was I talked to uh, former terrorists and former neo-Nazis and people who had left extraordinary lives and mindsets of hate behind. And how one of the through lines for so many of them, that transition, that inflection point was parenthood. And it's interesting in a way because the opposite is also the case as well. That yeah. it can be either this gateway to, I have to do what's right for my kid and yeah. my kid only and yeah. all of the tribalism and otherizing, or it can be a lens to critique our own non-generosity, our own insularity, mm-hmm. our own cruelty. When you hear certain things coming out of your children's mouth and say, why do I think it's wrong for my daughter to say she hates Trump, well, then it's wrong for me to do it too. Mm-hmm. And, and we tried very hard, my partner and I tried very hard during the election to say, look, you can not like what he stands for, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't hate him. And one of my, I think uh, you'll enjoy this story, Eric, one of my favorite moments during the election was uh, this package arrived at home and it was a mermaid Snuggie. My daughter saw her name was on it and opened it. And I come home and she is clinging this thing for life. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened (laughs) in her little eight-year-old life. It's amazing. And uh, I go into the other room. My partner's like, who sent her that in the mail? Like, why are we getting mermaid Snuggies at home? And I said, oh, it's my friend Scotty Nell Hughes. She's someone I'm on CNN with, I'm on air with. She's the Trump supporter I'm often on air with. And my daughter had obviously overheard this and comes into the room holding the mermaid Snuggie <laughs> at arm's length like it's now poison. Yeah. And I said, honey, she's a Trump supporter and she's a good person. Mm-hmm. And those two things are true. And there are a lot of people who do not nice things who are Hillary supporters. Like it's not, the, the two don't have to be, don't have to go together. And what's amazing is I've heard her repeat that. Mm. I've heard her mm. say, mm. Trump supporters are good people too. Mm-hmm. And I, if we can figure out how to get through this moment of what I think is really important and profound ideological wrestling over what does justice look like? Yeah. What does equality look like? How do we get there? And at the same time, hold in our hearts the aspiration of that idea which is if you believe in equality and justice, then treat everyone with equality and justice while arguing about the paths and policies to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've said uh, the first step is starting to recognize the hate inside ourselves. We need to catch ourselves and our, our hateful th- thoughts in all their forms in all of us. So Eric, you, um, I mean, you have had a pretty exciting early century. Uh, <laughs> you became the editor-in-chief of redstate.com. You were involved in the Tea Party. You became a syndicated newspaper columnist, a drive-time, very popular drive-time host in Atlanta, um, occasionally guest-hosting Rush Limbaugh's syndicated radio show. And in 2016, you were a conservative who was not supporting the Republican <laughs> nominee, but your year was a lot more eventful yes. than that. Yeah, so I, as all bad stories begin, I went to a CrossFit box <laughs> in 2015. Um, traveling the country in the debates, needing to get back in shape, was just out of breath all the time. And it just got worse. And, you know, my dad told me everything went downhill at 40, and I had hit 40 and thought, everything is falling apart. Just couldn't do CrossFit, couldn't keep up. Um, it got worse. Thought it was allergies. Uh, next thing I know, uh, I am being rushed into an ICU after getting a CT. Literally, I got a CT scan, and you know the techs aren't supposed to tell you anything. And the guy comes in, ghost white, and says, "Do I strap him down?" And I just fell out laughing and started to sit up. And he pushes his chest. No, you can't get up. You should be dead. I had twenty some odd blood clots in my lungs. Uh, they had been accumulating. And literally, my wife couldn't be there. She had to pick up the kids. Uh, we weren't expecting anything. It was allergies. And while I'm in the CT scan, of course, you, you can't get your cell phone working. And I, I get out of range, and my phone just lights up. It's my wife. Uh, the Mayo Clinic had called. She had these random spots in her lungs that had them for years. And they called and said she needed to come in. Uh, she, they were starting to see people with her condition develop lung cancer. 
So all this happens. My wife has a very rare form of genetic uh, lung cancer. There is no cure. Uh, we have all these, these things happen, and I had written that I wouldn't support the president. Uh, we had to have armed guards at the House for three months. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I couldn't support him because he didn't reflect my values, and I didn't think he reflected the values of the people I saw who were aggressively supporting him. Mm-hmm. And right. I just felt like somebody needed to say, this is madness. But you also then set out to write this book, um, which came out at the end of last year, at Litton of 2017, When I Wake. It's my closet cookbook. There are lots of recipes. There there is a cookbook. Yeah, there are recipes. It's fascinating. Um, (laughs) But you have to read a little while to get to the cookbook. Um, But it's life lessons from a father to his children, because what you also do in that book, and I I do want to say that you also are on record saying that if somebody pointed a bullet at your head and said you have to either vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, you would have to choose the bullet. Yes. So, like, that's also who you are. Yes. I need to be a provide relief. context in this yes. room. Um, context. <laughs> and but in that room, in this book, you also say to your, you start looking at at. I do think you know this this reckoning. Like what? How? What have I done in these last years that is on record? That is on the internet? That my kids are going to read one day, and I want them to understand me in a greater fullness. And to me, that's just, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I make my living on the internet. I'm very blessed. I've had a TV and a radio studio in my house uh, for years, thanks to the internet. Um, I initially got started as a writer on the internet because I hated being a lawyer. And I've increasingly become mindful of two things about the internet. One is that all of us, myself included, um, we, we can lose ourselves on the internet and become our worst selves. And then others want to define us by the worst thing we've done on the internet, uh, even if it was a decade ago. And, and probably the worst thing I've ever done on the, dec- on the internet was a decade ago. People still bring it up that you have no credibility because of this thing you did 10 years ago. And if none of us are allowed to move beyond the worst thing we've done, there's no incentive for any of us to become yeah. a better person. And I wanted to make sure my kids understood that. The other thing, and I think this is the most deeply disturbing thing about the internet no one talks about and should, is it has allowed every single person in this room and all of us up here to ignore our physical, actual next-door neighbor and become friends with the next-door neighbor on Facebook. I tell my kids all the time, and I mentioned this in the book, that Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the welfare of the city in which you are in exile, for there you will find your salvation. And I really do believe that means your local community... Uh, all politics is local. If you don't know about the homeless man under the bridge or that your next door neighbor is sick and needs food, uh, you're not being a good member of the American community. And my kids need to understand that they need to know their next door neighbor, not just their people on the internet. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today at the University of Montana with conservative commentator Eric Erickson and progressive commentator Sally Cohn. I kind of think that this phenomenon of trolls is like a... Well, it's, it's made possible by the internet. On the other hand, it's just, it's the dark side of the human condition with a new canvas that being... Anonymity. And, and, and being disembodied. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things you did, you've done, is you actually, well, you said, you said, I think you said, I don't want to brag, but somebody at Twitter told you that you had some of the worst trolls on the internet. I mean, I'm just like, saying, That's you quite know. a, yeah. <laughs> um, but you actually called a bunch of them up. I did. There were so many interesting things um, about my trolls. Even the word we choose, trolls, right? They're these yeah. little, you know, yeah. nebbishy creatures who live under yeah. bridges and throw rocks. And yeah. it's a very dehum- it's dehumanizing language. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I- I'll-, I'll say, I guess, that there were two things that I took away the most. Yeah. Um, one was, um, no one thinks they're mean. No one thinks they're mean. And again, it goes back to, uh, it's not just trolls. Talking to neo-Nazis and talking to terrorists, people think their motivation is fundamentally good. By and large. 
And these trolls didn't think they were doing something mean. In fact, they often thought I was the one who was mean or uncivil or, or cruel or unkind. Um, and, and in fact, when I heard some of their stories, I was so struck that here I am mildly irritated by the annoyance of being called things I can't repeat on public radio yeah. online. Um, and they're going through real hardships in their lives. And I think it's unfortunate in a number of ways that this is one of the things they choose to do with their time, but still, um, no one thinks they're mean. No one thinks they're hateful. No one wants to be hateful. Okay, so what do we do with that? What do we do about that? Because because we are, we're we're full of meanness. Well, the other thing I was going to say, and this is, I think, part of it is is that they also didn't think anyone was paying attention to their tweets, which of course is like, why are you tweeting them? But still, they were like, I didn't think anyone was reading them. I mean, they are, and we've forgotten it's, it's or that they could hurt you that they right. could make you feel the way you were feeling right and, and the felt. minute that they had the opportunity a lot of them apologized and I was yeah. like thanks but why'd you then do it right and this sort of it has something to do with a lack of accountability it also has to do with this way that the internet comes to exist within our own heads hmm. and so I mean there are studies that when people have to, uh, you know, are sort of challenged to engage online in a computer scenario, but where they can see the eyes, see a video of the eyes of the person that they're writing to, we behave more kindly. Mm -hmm. So there's this dehumanization of technology that then allows us to fuel a dehumanization that you're exactly right, Krista, didn't begin with technology, but but they they Mm -hmm. end up sort of nurturing and feeding each other. They can amplify it, yeah. So... I mean, part of what I think we do is start to understand that we all have a problem, right? And I, look, I don't, I don't care who does it worse. I happen to have an opinion on the matter about, uh, I mean, I actually, I'll be honest, what I really think, and I'm curious if you agree with this, Eric, is I, I've come to think that, uh, that the left, by and large, uh, is nicer to humanity in general, but not people in specific, and conservatives are nicer to people in specific, but not humanity in general. That's actually something conservatives say regularly. Okay, cool. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So That's really interesting. Right? And, yeah. and if we could somehow figure out a way to say, okay, you know what, yeah. like, let's try to yeah. do both. Um, but also from, I think, that point of recognizing it, that at least at the very beginning, nobody... We all have a habit of dehumanizing and demeaning the other. Mm -hmm. And we all think we're justified in doing it because of them. I've heard so many people in this election, I've been at dinner parties, so many people, my liberal friends who say, oh, these Trump supporters, man, they're so racist and they're so Islamophobic and I hate them. (laughs) Because they're so hateful, I hate them. I mean, I... (laughs) And... We blame the people for then expressing these views as though not it's been done to them, but it's inherent in them, that that's who they are as people. How can we say those two things at the same time? Mm -hmm. So I do think we have to have some faith in people's intention to be good and assume, I try very hard, and this is where I think it is a spiritual quest, I try very hard to assume, I try very hard to assume that you like me, in spite of some of the, but in spite of some of the things I know you've read and, 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 or, and, and written and said about gay people, I still don't assume you mean me ill will. I don't. I can, and, that, and that, the rest of that is sort of in the tension, but it's also, I, I, I want to believe the best in people. And it seems to me that's the gift I have to give others if I want them to believe the best in me. You, you have actually called that a daily spiritual practice. I yes. think that's this, you know, uh, I mean, Eric, I feel like you also have been caught in one of the related dynamics to all of this, which is that the culture we've created, the dynamic is that we also really want to freeze people in the worst thing they ever said mm-hmm. and then associate everybody who might be remotely like them or who voted like them. So, but in a, in a very particular instance, so you said something... I mean, you've said a lot of things. You're a a pundit. You're a pundit. But a few years ago, you you made a comment which you later really have said many times in many places, I regret. Mm -hmm. You said something in coarse language about a Supreme Court justice. And um, wrote a whole chapter in the book about that one. Yes. Yeah. And um, 
and the word goat was in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yes. Yes, yes and I've had to talk to my 12-year-old about this. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and when we announced on Twitter that we were doing this interview, and I said how excited I was to talk to both of you, you know, and I hadn't actually picked up on, hadn't followed this mm-hmm. saga yet, but <laughs> somebody came through and Just said... Just mention me online. Ask, You'll be amazed. Ask Eric Erickson what, uh, you know, saying this has to do with repairing civil discourse. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes to a point Sally made earlier that uh, we sometimes, and, and when I did that, it was, I think, 2009, and it, it was just, I didn't know anybody but a, a couple dozen people on Twitter at the time, and it was just friends, and it, it wasn't my remark, it was someone else's, and we were laughing about it, and it, I took ownership of it, though, and I've had to apologize for it nearly every day since, um, but the number of people who still bring it up because they think I need to be defined by that, yeah. and I've gotten a lot of people, well, you wouldn't say this about the right, Actually, I wrote several weeks ago about people on the right suddenly being okay with dictatorship as long as it goes their way. Hmm. And the common themes are, one, people don't know the record, but two, the fact that both sides really are at a disturbing point in this country where as long as their side is winning, they don't care. and I think that is only possible, again, and I hate to sound like a broken record on this, but it really is where my heart is right now, that it only matters when we're oblivious to the people on our city block, to the homeless people in our community. When it's just national politics, when Washington is the be-all, end-all of everything, everything's abstract because none of us are in Washington. Um, you know, I, look, I think it's very... It, Two points. It's it's dangerous to suggest that just a sort of return to provincialism or it's, it could be the solution, right? Because we have to remember that before the internet, before globalization and global interconnectedness and global awareness, we still had segregation. We still had sexism. We still had homophobia. We still had all the things. We had a lot of things that I think made this country great, but a lot of things I think that we had to work on and that that provincialism that that especially given the historical way in which our neighborhoods have been shaped led to uh, a lot of myopia so i'd say that look i have a bent on this and i am clear yeah. on it which is yeah. i want everyone to be nicer i want everyone to hate less and i think progressives should lead the way because some, <laughs> somebody, well, somebody has to go first and and i also feel like look to the points that we're making here uh, if there is a side that says, that professes um, that people can change and grow, and in fact, that is a core of progressive politics, is that please don't stay where we've been as a country in the divisiveness of racial segregation and slavery and the subjugation of women and the you know yawning inequality, economic inequality. We are not, we don't have to stay there. Please don't stay there. Let's progress. That is the idea uh-huh. of progression. That, that demands, it invites change in the country and in individuals. And so if, you, if, if your vision involves people changing and growing, uh-huh. then you have to be able to literally practice what you preach and create space for people to change and grow. Can, can I ask you, when you say this, because I've said something similar on the right that, you know, we, we've got we've to improve. We can't improve the other side. We've got to improve our side. And I get a lot these days. Well, that's unilateral disarmament. We, we can't be nicer because the other side's going to. There's just this, it absolutely is this lack of faith to believe the other side is capable of growing. Yeah, I've, um, I get it, too. Um, I still have friends, and, you know, activists and organizers who feel like hate and, and divisiveness is one of the strongest tools in their toolbox. Um, you know, look, I just, I always return to um, one of my favorite quotes, a Martin Luther King quote, and he says, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Yeah. Hate mm-hmm. is not hate. the answer to hate. And he right. said hate is too great a burden to bear. Correct. Yeah. And, and you can't hate your way out of hate. Yeah. You um, know, also, I, I want to say liberals, and I love that definition of progressive, but I don't think progressives have, you know, a corner on the market of believing in human growth and change, right? And, and you are a, 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 a devout evangelical Christian, and conversion is an important mm-hmm. value and belief in Christianity. Um, you write about um, your Aunt Lucy, mm. 
And, you know, some, and I, you know, what's interesting to me is like, I feel like everyone in our society right now has the story of their loved one who's on the other side. I thought you were about to say we all have an Aunt Lucy, because I've got an Aunt Lucy, too. Okay, well, yes. maybe we all have an Aunt but we all, or it's often the brother-in-law. It's often your brother-in-law. A lot of, of brothers-in-law. questions, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but for some reason, like, let's say another way to paraphrase repairing public discourse is we want to grow up as a society. Mm. We want to be worthy of the moment we inhabit and meet it with our best. And we have we possess a lot of intelligence in our lives, in our families, about, you know, for example, that, that you know, nothing gets any better if people don't acknowledge mistakes they made, mm-hmm. and we don't embrace that and encourage them to grow, and that you never, ever change anybody's mind by telling them how stupid they are, ever, never, ever in history <laughs> has that happened. Um, I want to say, uh, to me, the opposite of hate isn't love. It's connection. It's that you have to see. You don't have to, you don't have to love people to not hate them. You have to see that you have something at your core, a fundamental humanity, a fundamental goodness that transcends the division. And the reason I talk about my Aunt Lucy is there are people who, when you meet them, when you know them, when I talk to my trolls, you realize that the we're at a point in our society, in our history, where we focus on a very small sliver of our beliefs to fight over. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but when I see my relatives who I don't agree with on 100% of... Pol- First of all, I have a whole bunch of relatives I don't agree with on 100% of political issues, but I don't see them as they're still on my side because we... I don't know, what do we agree on? You know, 90% of the political issues? Are, where's that dividing line? But the point is, when I see my Aunt Lucy, all right, maybe we disagree on even more. I still love her. Yeah. I still care about her. I still know she's a good person and wants what's best mm-hmm. for me and my family and the country and the world. And that is a really good place to be able to start mm-hmm. to then talk about mm-hmm. what we disagree on. You know... It, when I started at CNN at the end of 2009, I, I grew up watching CNN being in Dubai. We, I mean, it was the news channel you watched. Um, and came home, joined CNN, and suddenly surrounded by people who, as a kid growing up, interested in politics, they were the enemy. I mean, James Carville and Paul Begala, they got that Clinton guy elected. Uh, Donna Brazil, turns out they wound up being my best friends at CNN, still great friends with all of them. Uh, and being able to make those connections. I, a, a friend of mine who disagrees greatly with you on many things uh, found out I was coming out here and he sent me a text. He says, you don't need to go out there because you'll come back and you'll like her. <laughs> right. He knows me so well. It's been um, known it, to it, happen. It, yeah, it really is amazing that it, when you actually meet someone uh, and, and you learn about someone and, and you learn their interests, um, you connect with them on a way you, you, you don't on over the internet. You know, I tell people all the time that the reason I'm a conservative is because I believe we're all sinners and I want as few in charge of me as possible. And then I, I also say that, you know, that, that's exactly why I'm, I mean, that's why I like small government. Uh, the fewer sinners in charge of me, I mean, I've got enough sins of my own. I wrote about them in the book. Um, but a lot of evangelicals in current American politics have gotten so wrapped up in their belief in an existential crisis, a, an assault of their culture, an assault of their religion, they've forgotten the concept of grace. And I think all of us, uh, whether or not you are an evangelical Christian, whether or not you're a Christian, most faith cultures, most spiritual cultures have a concept of grace. And I think we lose that over the internet as we interact more and more with people who are faceless. After a short break, more with Eric Erickson and Sally Cohn. We've also just released a new episode, only in the On Being podcast feed, of Living the Questions, where I move to the other side of the conversation in shorter form. 
This week with some thoughts on the tender, inflammatory heart of our life together right now. Find that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with two pundits on opposite ends of the American political spectrum. Sally Cohn is a progressive commentator who's also worked for Fox News. Eric Erickson is a conservative commentator who's also contributed to CNN. I spoke with the two of them at the invitation of the University of Montana Center, named for Senator Mike Mansfield, who famously modeled integrity, courage, humility, and respect across the partisan aisle in the tumult of the 1960s and 70s. Since we recorded this conversation, Sally and Eric have been on polar opposite sides of the Kavanaugh hearings and as controversial as ever before. But I couldn't let go of a conversation I had after the event with two 12-year-old girls who'd come expecting to be bored and instead were riveted. They told me they had not witnessed or imagined that a political conversation like this was possible. Michael Marsolik, Montana Public Radio's program director, moderated a few questions from the standing room only audience. Here's a question and a very particular kind of looking for practical answers to questions, uh, particularly hopeful about this localism that Eric talked about. And this person wonders if any of you have any practical tips for navigating political minefields such as the PTA or the co-op or the block party. <laughs> Okay, that's where life happens. That's a great question. Yeah. You, you know, I, I will say that I, I have commented more than once in the last few months that uh, I, I may give up politics for the pulpit at some point. And I was a city councilman um, elected, and it's worse than national politics. Local politics is far dirtier. Um, people get mad at you in the grocery store because their, their garbage wasn't collected. Um, the thing, though, I would tell you is to go full circle to where this night began. Uh, just yeah. don't impute motives to someone when you don't really know their motives. Um, a lot of people believe a lot of things. Some people believe things that are mutually contradictory. I think we all do. I know I do. Um, but don't impute motives to the person. You, you haven't walked in their shoes. You don't know their background. And we could all do a better job, particularly at the local level in a PTA or, or whatnot. It, it may not be that they just want a, a way to get their kid ahead of, over your kid. They may have real, real reasons for wanting to do these things. It's just getting out of imputing motives would go a long way to helping things. Mm. Um. I'll give a practical tip and a challenge. So the practical tip is we, we know from neuroscience that when people uh, sense an argument, their brain shuts down, the persuasion parts of their brain shut down, and the fight or flight parts of their brain light up, and they pick a side. And no one's going to pick your side. It's by definition an argument. So the other person you're arguing with is going to pick their side and, and then the whole thing breaks down and everybody leaves feeling pretty crummy about things. And so the extent to which we can keep things conversational and also that if you want to persuade someone else, you have to be open to being persuaded yourself. These are two-way streets. They have to be. And not like you're faking it. Really, authentically, meaningfully, hearing what someone else is saying. Um... And then the other is, look, we have to do something about um, the way in which our lives and our communities are segregated. And that is increasingly ideological. Uh, it's also racial, economic. Um, and, you know, it's a very interesting thing about the gay thing, right? Like, you could have these stealth gay people, I was one, where I was, like, dormant in my family that whole time. And then suddenly, surprise, I'm gay. And they already liked me, so it sort of worked out well. And that's why we've had <laughs> such quick progress 
on gay rights as a country, that doesn't usually happen, say, with like black people or Muslims. Mm -hmm. You know, like your cousin doesn't just suddenly one day come Turn out, out as <laughs> Mexican. <African> so, <laughs> <laughs> but there are studies that, you know, look, kids who go to racially integrated elementary schools Ha grow up to actually, they have less racial bias. And college students who participate in racially integrated uh, activities and after school programs are uh, actually reduce their racial bias. So there's something about us knowing each other, being together, relating to each other that then has a much more positive effect more broadly. Mm -hmm. I, I actually, I, that actually leads me to one of the questions I want to ask as we. Um as we wind down, which is, if the goal of a robust civility is not that we agree, right? And that in fact, uh, we really do have some deep, deep differences where there's not even gonna be a lot of common ground in the room. But I think an assumption we're making here, or a, a proposition, is that we, we don't, we're not gonna let common ground, easy common ground, be a prerequisite for common life. Like, we are going to insist on creating something called common life. But if it is about also just learning to disagree better, with more integrity, more personal integrity, not hating, um, what, what difference does it make? And like the two of you have been, and you're both really good at saying, you know, I'm not perfect at this. You know, Sally, you've said, I haven't learned to stop hating yet. And and, and, and Eric, you said... Oh, I said, have lots. Yeah, you said... Some of them not repeatable. In your book, you know, you said, the need for relationship and community is why it pains me to have to acknowledge what a jerk I have been and can still be on social media. So, so this is a work in progress for any of us. We are all sinners. Um, what is the experience you have of what does shift? What shifts? What becomes possible? What difference does it make? I um, have had the experience myself of being unexpectedly kind in the face of people being cruel, online or off, and seeing the difference it makes. In yourself. In my, first and of all, in I them? feel better. Mm -hmm. I feel better when I'm not a jerk. I just do. Um, try it. <laughs> um, but in, in them as well. Mm -hmm. uh, people write back and say, hey, you're, you're all right. You know, um, your friend warning you that you might <laughs> like me. Uh, and I had the privilege of finding example after example. I mean, there are incredibly powerful stories of people who were, you know, professional hate mongers or kids who were just saying nasty, violent, racist things and who the targets of that hate showed kindness, generosity, and transformed those dynamics on Twitter. People who left entire hate movements mm -hmm. because the people who they had been raised thinking were hateful showed mm -hmm. them kindness. And I have to say, I'm aware of the, power of the burden that in a way this suggests is that those who are perhaps, if you believe it's not even, those who perhaps are at the receiving end of more of the hate should have to shoulder the burden of taking the high road. I, I get that. There are times where it feels deeply yeah. unjust and, to me. And in some cases, it's too much to ask. And but in some, some of cases, us are strong enough to, to ask. ask it of. On yeah. the other hand, this is where those of us who are yeah. more privileged can, in fact, step up. Yeah. And also, I want to say, I, I look, I believe in the high road. I believe in treating people like they are all extraordinary and beautiful and equal. And so I do feel like that is, the, that is it, that is the work. Mm -hmm. And I, I am blown away by the difference it makes. You know, I'm always struck, um, if just riddle to some degree, uh, what is the first bad in Scripture? What is the very first bad thing that happens in Genesis? 
it's not Cain and Abel, and it's not the fall, the serpent, and the apple. It's actually in the Garden of Eden before evil even enters the world. God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's the first bad, loneliness. And so many of us concoct relationships and communities online, and we're still alone. And then we get in our tribes, uh, Republican, conservative, liberal, progressive, Democrat. Well, that tribe then becomes alone, insulated. We don't mix and mingle with the other. And when you don't mix and mingle with the other, it's a lot easier to believe the other is the enemy. And I really push myself more and more to, to make sure I'm actually having physical interaction with other people. And, you know, with, with the wife who has cancer, and I know we're, we're running out of good years, um, and being in middle Georgia where most of my friends are online uh, and not there, uh, I'm more and more mindful of the fact that it really is necessary for people to have actual real friends. And... I, I don't think there's a coincidence at all, relatedly, that we both began having these internal conversations um, with having kids. Um, that level of local, and I don't mean to keep harping on local here, that's not intentional, just community. Mm -hmm. Physical, real, break bread community. In, in my book, I am a firm believer that everyone should learn to cook because you should open your home and bring people in who you want to be your friend that you don't know. Um, there's, a, there's a great Christian author, Rosaria Butterfield, who was a, a lesbian scholar at Syracuse, and she writes to the Christian community a lot that you, there is no better community in America than the gay community, where an unlocked door and a warm meal could be the difference between drugs, depression, suicide, and that if we want real community, it needs to be radical community. We need to recognize that our blessings are blessings to be shared with other preach, people. Preach, Erickson, yeah. preach! So. The gay gospel uh, uh, coming yeah. from Eric Erickson. Uh, yeah, there you go. See the day of electric set, I believe in change. Hallelujah! <laughs> Praise Jesus. Um, okay. But, yeah. You know, let, let me just say <laughs> it is. We undervalue in the 21st century real community and real meal. And if we get back to that, I think lots of the world's problems can be solved around a dinner table with a warm meal with strangers getting to know them. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Eric Erickson and Sally Cohn. Okay, we could finish one minute early, which would please something deep in my radio bones, but I'd really like to keep... Can we just keep going for five more minutes? Sure. Is that all right? Like, I've got nowhere okay. to be. Okay. Um, and I don't know if this is uh, something I just want to bring up with the two of you and in this room. Something that's very much on my mind is I'm so happy we haven't talked about the White House tonight, right? Just because we're so fixated, God right? from whom Thank all blessings you. flow. Yes, no, really, because there's more to life and there's more to politics and there's more to us than politics. And um, something that puzzles me, and I'm curious about the two of you, because you are in that world, is that on so many of these things on which we're so divided and which a lot of hate gets thrown around by the extremes which we allow to define and frame all of our important discussions, there's this middle ground, this vast middle ground where people aren't the same. But, you know, for example, I mean, you know, for a long time it's been true that on abortion, you know, something like 60 to 65 percent of Americans across party lines favor, you know, abortion with limits. Now, there's a big conversation to have about what those limits are, but rather than always having the same fight about it's always right or it's always wrong, why can't we start our conversations in the, at the, you know, where we are all ready to have a fruitful conversation? Um, could we start talking about the things we all want to be talking about where we're actually ready to begin? Like, how would that begin? oh, I'm so cynical on this issue, I'd probably depress you all. I am of the belief, and again, it goes back to being a conservative because I want as few sinners in charge of me as possible, is I think that the solutions that will move the country forward, by and large, 
tend to be at the state level. Mm -hmm. And I get a lot of hate from my conservative friends for saying, you know, if I want a state where I can put restrictions on abortion and a, a Christian can run a business and doesn't have to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, I need to allow there to be a state that allows unrestricted abortion and sanctuary cities and tells a Christian, bake the cake. Uh, that if we aren't willing to respect those, that diversity under federalism, if it's all one size fits all, then it's one size fits all at the extremes of both parties fighting over power. I, here's where I am biased and I will disagree, which is I, I actually think we're, we are, a fun, whatever word we want to use, we are a fundamentally progressive country on issue after issue after issue, immigration reform, uh, abortion rights. Uh, you know, look, what I think is true is that the parties have become captured by, mm -hmm. by and large, corporate elites and that those, and as well as special interests, and that our media has right. been infused with a sort of reality show cage match-esque yeah. dynamic that, worse. that, that yep. forces the extremes. Right. As a, because what, what fun would it be to watch people agree right. about right. fundamentally important things in our country? Now, just not to say that I believe in centrism, yeah. right? But that you're right. It, yeah. Those two things can coexist. I will say this. The politicians and the media have to stop dumping toxic sludge into our democracy. Right. Right. And we have to demand it change. Right. We could keep going another. So we've to finish. Um, Eric, something you've been really articulate, I feel, about is uh, you don't want to be completely focused on what you think is wrong. You also, right? And I feel like we've been circling around this all the time. We're very fixated on what we hate. Mm -hmm. Really clear about that. And, but so focused on it that it starts to define us mm -hmm. and I think deform us. And, I, and are you, again, you in, your, in the book, you say, you know, I'm going to also be really clear about what I love. And I, I don't know if I'm saying it exactly the way you would say it, but I think you know what I mean. Like, what is it that you want to be? I think it's sometimes king, you know, you know, you, you see the darkness, you grapple with the darkness, but you keep walking towards the light. So how is, uh, how are, what, are, what is it that, what's the light now that's drawing you? What is what you love that is mobilizing you every bit as, as, as what you know needs to be better? Um, other than food, that's, that's kind of a problem. Um, I keep pitching this TV show where I bring politicians in and cook and we don't talk politics. I want to talk to Nancy Pelosi about chocolate because I love chocolate. Uh, so does she. Um, find common ground that way. You know, I, 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 this sounds very trite. I'm from the South. Forgive me. I love Jesus. And I do a very bad job of modeling him more often than not and have to conform towards that. Um, I, what I love is knowing that at some point there will be a better life, um, particularly given my wife's situation that gives me hope, um, and knowing that I want my children to see a glimmer of it now. And what am I doing to give them that glimmer? And I just tell my kids all the time, don't be like the kid you don't like in school. Um, be like the person you like. And model that behavior. And we all fail. I mean, we're all sinners. We, we all fall. But, yeah, I, I, I love God, so I've got to do better looking like him on the planet. Uh, and I'm going to fail. Bible says I'm going to fail. But it doesn't mean I will always fail. Hmm. Hmm. Eric Erickson is editor of the conservative blog The Resurgent, host of The Eric Erickson Show on WSB Radio in Atlanta, and a contributor to Fox News. His books include Before You Wake, Life Lessons from a Father to His Children. Sally Cohn is a columnist and political commentator for CNN. She hosts the podcast State of Resistance. Her book is The Opposite of Hate, a field guide to repairing our humanity. This episode with Eric and Sally will be added to On Being's Civil Conversations Project, 
which also includes resources for communities and families. Find that at civilconversationsproject.org. We loved being in Montana and look forward to opening On Being Missoula. Special thanks to Dane Scott, Abraham Kim, Nikki Fear, Michael Marsolik, Linda Talbot, and all the great people at Montana Public Radio and the Maureen and Mike Mansfield Center at the University of Montana. Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Kaspatek Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, and Damon Lee. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.